0: Hello and welcome to Finance, Energy and Beyond. Brought to you by Stanbrook Consulting, a specialist recruitment consultancy for the finance and energy markets. I'm your host Jack Hopper and in this episode I'm joined by Gavin Stewart, former regulator for the FCA and ex-Olympic rower. Gavin tells us about his journey and shares his lessons from working in regulation and how being an Olympic athlete affected his mindset and career. Hope you enjoy. Gavin, welcome. Hello there. Welcome. Really, really uh, pleased to have you on the podcast. I think for uh, for our listeners, let's just start with uh, who you are and and what you specialise in. Okay,
1: um, so I guess there are two parts to this. There's a financial services partner there's as there's a part about sport. Um, on the FS side, uh, I was a regulator for 27 years, uh, so working across um, Bank of England, FSA, Financial Conduct Authority, and then I spent uh, six and a half years as a consultant with Grant Thornton. Um, the second half of that, I was essentially commentating on regulation. Uh, and then I stopped working full time at the end of February, and I guess I'm freelance now. I suppose you'd call it. Um, so I still write about regulation, uh, but also uh, trying to write some fiction. So I had a novel published back in 2018. Another one, hopefully, coming out uh, next year. So that was daily, you know, the commentating was kind of daily blogs, podcasts, all that sort of stuff.
0: Nice, um, thank you. And and how long? How long were you? How long were you working in in, in that field?
1: um what what in the um sorry in what field in the in regulation oh in regulation sorry 27 years wow. um and in terms of the specialism I, I think that's that's quite a hard one and if truth be told I probably struggled a bit um for a for a decent time trying to work out exactly what I wanted to do there and what I was good at um uh and for a while I felt like I suppose a bit of an outsider, so I'd done history at university rather than economics or you know, something more more obviously FS related. Um, But I guess I ended up specializing effectively in being a generalist in trying to join up and translate between different organizational silos and trying to make sense of the whole. Um, And then moving on to the sports bit, I spent the first 15 years of my career, give or take, effectively trying to balance it with um, with international sports. So I rode for Great Britain um, for a lot of that time, uh, went to two Olympic Games in Seoul and Barcelona um, and then did quite a lot of athlete representation. So I chaired the um, British Olympic Association Athletes Commission um, and then I was on the board of UK Sport and I chaired its uh, lottery awards panel for its first five years.
0: Busy man. <laughs> I think that's 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 one thing I'll, I'll, I'm going to find really interesting about our conversation. is like you've had really senior roles. Uh, obviously, in your early days, you're just starting your career, but you were also starting your career in sport. Uh, how did that work? About trying to juggle, trying to juggle um, these two sort of uh, paths. Uh,
1: with with a lot of difficulty, if I'm honest. So I was, uh, you know, I. I essentially got back from the Seoul Olympics in 88. Um I was still a student um and in quite a lot of debt this was before the lottery. Um and I ended up getting a job with the Bank of England. Um and I was a supervisor there for 12 years. Um and while I was rowing I was tra- I was training probably 11 12 times a week. Um, wow, so four weekends 7 or 8 during the week before and after work essentially. Um, So there was a lot of juggling and squeezing stuff in, Um, not a lot of rest. um, (laughs) But, um, you know, if I look back on it, you know, it it feels it feels quite mad. But at the time it was it was, you know, it seemed quite natural, if you like. Uh, Yeah. You're
0: you're passionate about it. So you really enjoyed doing it, I, I guess. And so you studied history, you say? Yep. And then you, your first role at Bank of England. So I'm really interested in knowing a bit more about this. What, What is prudential supervision?
1: So um, we used to talk about it in terms of essentially protecting depositors' um, money. Uh, and that was the primary um, sort of statutory sort of goal in the 87 Banking Act. Uh, And so it's essentially about the, you know, the financial. um, Uh, the financial resilience of banks, so this is all banking supervision at the Bank of England Um, and obviously also the kind of quality of management and systems and controls in terms of decision making Mm. Um, and you'd look at the kind of, you know, the asset quality and the liquidity um, and obviously the quality of the capital and so on. Um, and there was a lot of monitoring, a lot of kind of how does the business model work? Um, mm. Are your systems and controls um, uh, geared up for the sort of risks that you're taking?
0: And you've you done that on a on a global scale, right? That, this isn't just UK banks, right?
1: Well, it, it's banks operating. For us, it was mainly banks operating in the UK. But a lot of those were um, were overseas banks, either as branches or as subsidiaries. Yeah. Um, so there was a reasonable, i a call out UK banks and then some overseas banks from Asia and the Middle East and Africa. And so in the latter case, you're dealing with um their home supervisors, the central banks in those countries. And obviously there are, you know, there are UK banks that operate in those jurisdictions as well. So it's quite a complex network of relationships.
0: Yeah, I bet. And 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 so whilst you was at while she was at Bank of England, correct me if I've got my time ro- time scales wrong here, but you, the year before that, you were at CL, and then oh, yeah, and Maybe in ninety two you was at was Barcelona. Barcelona. So you you were just a few years into your role at Bank of England when you were actually went to the Olympics in Barcelona, right? Yeah. Um, I'm I'm seeing, I'm not sure what it was like back then. Tell me, what was it like? Was it was it normal for um Olympic athletes to then have full-time roles? Uh, it was a
1: real it was a real spread to be honest. Um so after Barcelona, I became athletes rep for British rowing and went on to the Athletes Commission. And the commission had just done the first ever survey of the British Olympic team. And one of the things that came out of that was really the range of different um situations that people were in. So obviously there were a few people who effectively um, were you know, financially independent or doing very well because of sport and then there was a whole range down of you know, people getting support from family and friends, people going into debt, people being supported or not by their employers and one of the biggest things was that came out of it was the number of people who went into the games in significant debt and without a job to go to afterwards. Um, And Mm -hmm. so they were kind of, you know, going into the Olympic Village and what they were actually worried about was not so much how they would compete, but what was going to happen to them when they get when they got home. Um, And, you know, we produced I think quite a quite a kind of significant report off the back of that that we used to influence government and sports councils and so on. And I think, you know, set the set quite a lot of the agenda for the next kind of, you know, the period really when the lottery came in and the UK Sports Institute and so on was set up. Um, so, it, you know, it's quite, it was quite a big deal for us at the yeah. time. Um, and obviously you know, it came in the middle of that period where just after we only won one gold medal in Atlanta, the games after. And so there was quite a lot of political noise around what's actually happening in elite sport. And why aren't we as good as we brackets, you know, inverted commas should be.
0: And uh, for for the interest of the listeners, would you mind just explaining the lottery a little bit? Um, right. I'm sure some people probably don't even know what that is.
1: OK, so the national um, I'm a bit I'm a bit out of date. So apologies <laughs> if, if if some of this has changed. Um but the National Lottery came in. It was a John Major um, government um, initiative in the mid 90s, um, and essentially you have. You can buy a lottery ticket. There was a big lottery show on Saturday nights um, and though and a lot of that money went back in prizes and so on. But there was a, um, a proportion of it that I think it was originally around 25%. that was split between um, five good causes, one of which was um, was sport. And that was effectively divided up between the four home countries and then the UK as a whole. Um, and initially, it was only really about um, bricks and mortar, was by building new facilities. But after the disappointment of Atlanta, when there was only one gold medal and we came 36th, I think it was in the medal table, they said it could fund um, athletes and coaches and elite programs as well. UM, and so UK Sports Council. So the lottery fund was set up to do that in the run up to Sydney. UM, when obviously we did much better UM, and that was that was really the first time. I think athletes in the UK, Olympic athletes have been. Properly supported if you like in in terms of in terms of their training and competition, and so on and, and effectively given a decent chance.
0: Yeah, it's really interesting. I, I never knew this before we had a conversation. I'm sure there's many people that are in the same boat. I, I am seeing a lot more individuals now that maybe work for, I've seen some people that work for top consultancies yeah. that are going to the Olympics across the globe as well. Um, so some people do still have a a profession and also are a, full, a full-time athlete as well. So trying to they're trying to juggle that. But obviously, depending on... Uh, I, I guess it depends on what the what the event is as well, right? Um, certain individuals in certain events get sponsorships and things like this yep. where they get more funding.
1: Yeah, um, it does. And those relationships are changing all the time and, you know, not always for the better. So obviously there's been various kind of issues around the culture and some sports over the last few years. Um, and one of the things we were we were very keen on was developing the voice of athletes within sport. And I think you know we made some strides in that direction, but you know, hand on heart, I think it's probably got quite a long way to go still.
0: Yeah, well, oh, fair play to you for like uh, actually trying to make a difference and implementing some really important projects for the future of some of the athletes. And Gavin, I want to I want to rewind a little bit. Let's let's talk about your career. So you've you've worked at Bank of England. FSA and FCA. For for the listeners, my understanding here is that the, the FSA transferred uh, its title to the FCA. Is that correct?
1: Not quite that simple. Explain. Um, explain. So um, so the Financial Services Authority was formed um just after the ninety seven election. Um, and there've been a series of scandals at the Bank of England. They have been the collapse of BCCI and Bearings and so on. Um, but there've been others in other set, in other parts of the industry. Um, brought together financial regulation under one body, whereas previously it had been, I think, ten or eleven predecessor organisations. Um, so that that was quite a big event. Um, uh, but then, obviously. You know, 10 years later, you had the great financial crisis. You had Northern Rock um, and, you know, all the things that happened globally and 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 also in the UK Um, and the, you know, the FSA was clearly at fault, had missed some stuff. There were lots of other things involved, um, possibly for another time. Mm -hmm. Uh, And the then the incoming coalition government. So George Osborne as Chancellor said, right. We're going to break up the FSA. Failed organization. We're going to split it in two. We're going to give prudential regulation of banks and insurers um, and big investment banks to back to the Bank of England in the Prudential Regulation Authority. And then the Financial Conduct Authority, a new body um, built out of the FSA, will look after the prudential regulation of everything else and also conduct regulation for the whole industry. So including the banks and insurers who were who were being prudentially regulated by by the Bank of England. Um, So that's what's called a twin peaks um, approach to um, regulation. uh, And we spent, I suppose, essentially three years trying to make that a reality.
0: Wow. That is a massive, massive project, right? (laughs) What did you learn from that time? It was
1: quite, um, quite all-consuming. I think.
0: (laughs) Any lessons from it, Gavin? Um, it's hard to say, really. I mean, I, I think, I,
1: I, I mean, we might come back to this, but, but I think in terms of how we, how we approached it internally, um, it worked pretty well in terms of the separation and a lot could have gone wrong. Um, In terms of what's happened since, I think it's hard to tell because the the system hasn't been tested to the same anything like the same degree that the previous one was by the financial crisis. Mm. Um, uh, So well, you know, there's obviously been some conduct issues over the last 10 years around, you know, pensions and London Capital and Finance Um, and then you know there's obviously some issues around how the Bank of England should deal with the resolution of you know say Silicon Valley Bank um, in the UK and so on and how how well did that really work Uh, so it, it feels it still feels like it's too soon to tell and I'm quite wary of kind of the sort of declaring success Type approach to these things because I you know my my instinct is that it always comes around at some point none of these systems are perfect
0: yeah and you and you sort of propelled your experience and then you ended up working at Grant Thornton what was you what was you doing was you doing consultant, consulting consulting yeah, so firm, firms or
1: I, I yeah so I left in I left the FCA in 2016 um and moved across and if I'm honest, I bounced around a bit for about three years trying to find um, the right role. Uh, I did quite a lot of work on the rollout of the senior manager regime. um, By the FCA, you know, to kind of. um, Uh, insurance brokers and so on. Uh, And then when the pandemic started, I began. I was asked essentially to start writing stuff. And talking about regulation more generally, and I ended up essentially doing a daily blog on LinkedIn for three years, um, well, nice. pretty much all the way through. And then there were weekly newsletters and monthly podcasts and so on off the back of it, um, which I really enjoyed. And which, um, I mean, coming back to your your kind of your first question in terms of specialism, I guess it it was a chance for me to kind of pull lots of things together and make sense of them in a way that had often eluded me when I was actually there. Um, yeah, you know, a chance to kind of think about stuff and put things in context um, and talk about, you know, when there was an, an initiative, what was the history of similar initiatives? Um, what were the kind of operational limits that the uh, the regulators would experience in terms of implementing something? um and what were you know what were the likely results I guess because something a lot of stuff doesn't work you know regulation is about trying to make the market work better but -hmm. actually it doesn't always succeed um not through lack of effort or whatever but actually you know there's lots of there's so many factors involved in a lot of it that you know it's um and it's difficult to to understand sometimes what success really looks like. So I spent quite a lot of my career trying in the trenches, I guess, trying to evaluate that um and work out ways of how do you how do you measure when you've actually done a good job or not, and when's the right time to do it? Um,
0: <laughs> People want to see that uh, that success, right? they want to they want to see the result. It's sometimes really difficult to put your finger on it. Um... Did you get a resolution?
1: Um, short answer, no. Uh, there was. And and I think that's all kind of. I mean, I think that's still a problem. Um, I think the closer we got. To it and this may be a comment on on how we managed to approach it, but the closer we got to it, the more time it needed to understand what was actually going on. Um. But the, I suppose the executive committees and the board had only a limited appetite to look at the material. And so the whole thing is is always in balance between well, you're trying to tell a really complex story, but actually everyone's got limited bandwidth. So how do you actually square that circle? Um, At times we I felt like we got quite close, but I don't think we ever quite got there.
0: Interesting. It, people are time poor, right? That's, there's so much things going on. It's sometimes difficult. But uh, something yes, really important. Yes, and I think the you, other
1: thing probably is that um, the success or failure of regulation is also partly a function of what's happening in the wider economy. So mm. it clearly it, it doesn't happen and, you know, it doesn't take place in a vacuum. Uh, and there was a temptation when the economy was going well to assume that regulation was working well. Mm-hmm. And likewise, if the economy is going badly, there's an assumption, you know, things start to go wrong in the regulated world and you automatically, you know, there's an automatic assumption, that actually regulations to blame and regulation is probably a smaller part of both those, you know, both, you know, it's, it's less successful and more successful than those versions of the truth would um, done.
0: Yeah, I leave. suppose once, once that test comes, comes along, that's the only time you're going to find out, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah, and so some of it's resilience, and then you're trying to work out well, how how much of a buffer do you need? Mm. Uh, and you know, you're always right until you aren't.
0: <laughs> yeah. And then you learn and then you learn the, the, the hard way, right? Yeah. And, and, and Gavin, I wonder I want I'm sure there's many people that are similar to myself, really sporty, interested in sport. I've I've grown up watching the Olympics. Um, for me, it's an honour to have you on here, um, uh, uh, an Olympian. I want to know a little bit more about your experience. Did, and what did you learn from that experience that potentially sort of like helped you in, in your career? Um,
1: <laughs> how long have you got, really? Um, so <laughs> so the experience kind of profoundly affected me, I think. So I'm not one of these. I'm I'm not one of the people who kind of always was always great at sport and always dreamed of having an Olympic gold medal, started young, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. You know, I I've, I've I've rode with some of those people and I've met people from other sports who are like that. Um, uh, but that's not me. I was I was kind of a someone who tried really hard, but but was, you know, averagely good at stuff. Um, so so sport was a big deal for me in terms of um, Things I learned, I think an awful lot of resilience um, and an awful lot of working out how you learn from from failing. I mean, a lot of sport is about trying to do something better and falling short until you then achieve that bit of skill and then you can bank it and move on to the next bit. So a lot of it is about trying to row a perfect rowing stroke in my case and not not doing so um, and and how you. How you kind of deal with that. Um, associated, I think there is a, and this is a bit of this was a bit of a curse in terms of work. There's a sort of an idea of continual improvement. There's an idea of um, what am I going to do today that's better than what I did yesterday? Yeah. Um, and that's quite hard in the working environment because you're not as on. You know, you're not as in control uh, as you as you try to be in a in a kind of sporting context. Um, mm. and then I think there's also something about constantly looking outside for ideas. Um, so it's not. It's not about, you know, you're all you're always after some kind of edge. You're looking at how other people think about things. It might be a completely different environment. But yeah. and again, I think I find that quite hard to translate because I mean, certainly in um, in regulators, the real temptation to look internally. UM, for, for for the solution to things of how you can do something better, and it's they're not great. In my experience anyway, they're not great at looking into different industries and different parts of the of society and the economy for different ideas of how to approach particular problems. Um, so I learned a lot myself, but I think part of the part of the challenge has always been how much of that can I really transfer into a, a into a kind of a a, a work environment.
0: Difficult, right? difficult. Uh, they're two completely different worlds as, as well. I'm, yeah,
1: I'm... it's not it's not the same, you know, so not not everyone wants to be at work as much as they want to do international sport. That's yeah, you know, so yeah. self-selecting element to it and and I think there's not always the same. And this isn't a criticism, but there's not always the same commitment to the collective. So being in a team in sport. Actually isn't quite the same as being in a team in work. Um, when you're competing against each other, sometimes as much as you are with with, you know, the outside world and who you're competing against isn't always a, as clear. And I think also there's probably more clarity in sport around what success and failure are and a more and a yeah. greater willingness to accept failure and deal with it and move on. Whereas I think in, in a work environment, there's always a temptation to redefine your your terms of what success and failure really are.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, and so, again, not necessarily a criticism, but it is different.
0: And do, do you think... Uh... Do you think going down the route of sport, doing the rowing, being an Olympian h- helped you in your career?
1: Um uh, bluntly, probably not. Uh I think um I had a credibility uh challenge in the first years I was at the bank of how seriously I took my career given they were very accepting of the fact that, you know, it was all open, very accepting of the fact that I you know, I was I was, you know, doing international sport as well. But I think there was a, as I said, there was a credibility gap about how how seriously I took it. And not helped by the fact that as I said, I was a historian and not an economist. Mm. Um and then and then later on, I think I've well, I think I've always really struggled to translate some of what we've just been talking about into a work environment that's very different so my instinct was to try and bring as much of it as I could into yeah um into a working environment Um, but actually it was quite hard to do that effectively
0: I think so the mentality though of a professional athlete to have someone like yourself within a working environment, I I guess was really beneficial.
1: You must have had Uh, some
0: sort of drive.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, you'd have to ask others about that. I think, um, as I say, I I think for me, not, not all of the same things work. So, Mm. so for example, my tendency as an athlete is if there's a, if there's a really big challenge i will split it down into um bite-sized things that i can achieve gradually over time and 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 get there over let's say a year or two yeah. or six months or whatever at work the instinct is you have to solve all of the problem at once mm. um and ideally do it quickly
0: yeah and i think
1: <laughs> you know that that doesn't that doesn't work for my my mentality, but but I have to adjust to it. Yeah. And try and and try and get as close to that solving the big problem all at once Mm. as I can because that's what the the organization wants to do.
0: Of course, people want results, they want them quick.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So it's a very very different way of approaching it.
0: Yeah.
1: Yeah. Um and you know, so you're always for me, I was always trying to square that circle.
0: Not an easy one either. Because, like I say, time is money, and people do they do want results quickly. And in in terms of, um, I'm just thinking about some of the lessons that you that you learned in your career. What was the biggest lesson that you've learned in your career? Um. So I think for me
1: it was the importance of knowing why I was doing what I was doing. Um. So so and not make any judgments about this. So so the answer to that question could be something really quite personal. It could be about money or promotion or or working with people. Um, it could be something to do with wider purpose in society. It could be something to do with the intellectual challenge or the adrenaline buzz or whatever. So but but, but I think knowing what it is for you, I think is really important. Um, there was a bank meeting, a meeting at the Bank of England. I went to. It was the, my first day back after Barcelona, so I'd been at the closing ceremony on the Sunday night, and I was in the office on Tuesday morning, which I think wow. was a mistake in retrospect. Um, but I ended up going to a meeting of about twenty people, um, you know, representing my team, and I had no idea it was from the meeting what it was about, why we were all there for 45 minutes, what came out of it at the end, and I very nearly resigned the next day. Mm. Um, I didn't, obviously, uh, <laughs> but but I did realise that I'd sort of been drifting a bit, partly because of balancing the, other, the two sides. Yeah, yeah. Um, and for me, I think the answer to that, you know, the lesson for me was what I wanted was, I guess, to have some influence and to work with people I felt I could trust. So that was my kind of mantra, if you like. Mm. Um, and uh, yeah, but it's, it's yeah. I, and I think the other thing which sort of comes from that is which is probably a bit of advice I got was always. Always know what you want to get out of a of a particular meeting or a particular piece of work. um, You know, what's your what's your view going into it as to, you know, what's what you're trying to come out of it with? What are your red lines, etc, etc? So a lot of people I think. Including myself before you sort of you just go with the flow and you react in the moment. And I think just having a clear idea of what of what you want out of it helped me a lot in the second half of my of my career mm. um, I felt like I got a lot more done
0: yeah I, I can I can certainly agree with you in in terms of I think when COVID happened I had a similar thing even with meetings because I used to work for a corporate bank and you used to have meetings for meetings sake and sometimes you just end up going through your whole day and you feel like I haven't achieved anything because I've just been sitting in meetings the whole day I think when COVID came along, it was a real opportunity just to be like, you need to start saying no, and 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 really ask why, why are we doing this? What we what's the outcomes that we're looking to to get from it? Have for me, I started doing clear agendas on meetings, so I really knew what my time is going to be used on. Um, otherwise, as you say, you can just go with the flow, and before you know it, a week's gone, a month's gone. You haven't really achieved loads. That's yeah, I sharing. think it's just
1: a bit of self knowledge, and you can easily sort of mm-hmm. switch off some of that um, in the midst of all the kind of you know in in midst of all the kind of corporate culture that you're being that that's being pushed onto you. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually, you know, as as I say, I'm I'm a big believer in working working in proper teams where you know the people you're working with really matter for you. But but actually, if you don't know why you're there then i think that's always going to be you know that's always you know going to be a detractor from Mm. from you know what you're able to do
0: yeah Uh, and and Gavin, I i want to ask you what's the one thing that you're most proud of from your career
1: um i think it probably is that um I mean we've talked about the athlete voice stuff and the reports in the 1990s and i I think they're really important to me but in in career terms i think it probably is that 2010-13 period when the fsa was splitting up and and we managed really not to drop anything in the dissolution of the fsa and the creation of the pra and the financial conduct authority and there was a lot of temptation and pressure really to focus on the kind of the brave new world of the new system and and the kind of downgrade if you like the difficult process of getting there uh, and i think we we managed to resist that um and as i said there was a lot that could have gone wrong externally or internally um there was still you know Quite a lot of the crisis was still happening in terms of the sort of sovereign wealth end of it, um, but thankfully, I mean, I think both new, both of the new organisations got a decent start. Um, yeah. It's one of those things about regulation where actually the avoidance of stuff going wrong is kind of what it's all about. So I think that's probably that's probably what I'd say.
0: It's a really good answer. I mean, there's not many people that can say that they were involved in such a big project. Like I mean, was very Alex, much of
1: so. you know, it was very much of we, you know, there was a there was a whole um, kind of there was obviously there was a program team. Yeah. Um. There was a lot of liaison across that with the people in their respective organisations. You know, the FSA, but also going across to the bank, and you know, having different ideas and just somehow bringing it together. Um, and then obviously, and then you know. People can do what they want with the new organizations, but as I say, I think they both got a decent start.
0: Yeah, and to bring those people together and collaborate to try and achieve the uh, the same goals. It's not always easy though, right? Did you, did yeah, you have any, any difficulties with thing, the collaboration? Research.
1: You know, there's a lot of there's a lot of disagreement about, you know, how to you know, what should take priority and why and what the cultures of the new organization should start off being like. Um, you know, some of which we've seen the, you know, we've seen the subsequent decade uh, play out, but um, yeah, but but I say for that for that period, we managed to be close enough together um, not to drop anything.
0: Yeah. And look at it now. And, and, and Gavin, we've got we've got a bit of a closing tradition on this podcast, so I'd ask you, can you name someone within your network who's really inspired you and tell us why?
1: So I, I, I will do. Um, but, but, I would say there are an awful lot of unsung heroes in the world I worked in, um, and you know people who've who've really you know given given their careers to getting specific parts of the system as good as they can be and being as expert in that as they can be. Um, but you asked for one person so he um, hate this. Um, but there's uh, someone I worked with and for called Lyndon Nelson, um, who uh, was ended up as uh, deputy CEO of the Prudential Regulation Authority, um, but had been at the Bank of England and the FSA. All the way through. Um, now does a lot of work for the IMF and so on, um, and I, know, I learned a huge amount, as I say, working with and for him. Um, and I think he has been fundamental to a lot of the good things that have happened in UK regulation over the last thirty years or so.
0: Brilliant, and 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 would you like an opportunity to give any of those unsung heroes uh, a shout out? Um, anyone in particular
1: i would but 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 actually I, I i i won't because i don't i don't have a list and it would be too long but but, <laughs> but i mean i i do i do think there is something about um put this um i think a lot of the strength of the organizations that i've worked with have kind of been have have been those people who made the wheels turn internally run the people that you would see in the papers, or who necessarily run the organization. Um, A lot of their, a lot of the strength that those organizations have, they're clearly not perfect, um, is is actually in the kind of, in the core of, of, um, of of the kind of. Uh, the body of people who, who, who make stuff work and. Work their damn just to stop stuff going wrong. Mm.
0: Gavin, I can I can really see why rowing was your was your sport. Definitely a team player.
1: <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, uh, 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 rowing is very much that. And you know, from you know whether it's kind of you know, I don't know, in my time, Steve Redgrave or Johnny and Greg Searle or whoever, Martin Cross, you know, they were all the all the same. Um, you know it's always you know whatever um, whatever makes the boat go fast
0: absolutely yeah it's all about the team look that that brings us to the end of the podcast Gavin I'd just like to say a massive thank you for your time and for sharing your experiences and your expertise thank you so much
1: no you're welcome Jack thanks a lot
0: thank you